So we've just celebrated Christmas, and that's good. And we kind of just talked, we made fun a little bit, but I'm sure that most people that are probably in this service, because people that come on, on the, around the holidays tend to be, like on New Year's, uh, tend to be maybe people we see regularly in the seats. So uh, we've all have talked about, yeah, let's make, let's make sure we talk about what Christmas really means, and it's not really just about the presents and the trees, and it's not really even just about family, although that's great and that's warm and fuzzy, but it's really about the birth of Christ, and, and, but not just the birth of Christ. See, we celebrate Christ's birth because of what he did after his birth, his, his perfect life and his ministry, and then his eventual completion of God's work on the cross to redeem us. So when we sing those Christmas songs about a Savior is born, he's only a Savior born because of what he did at the end of his life, not in the manger. And so, and, but as church family, we tend to kind of focus on that anyway, so that's pretty routine. We're going to unpack that a little bit, though, today, talk about what that really means. What does it really mean that he came to save us and that kind of thing? So um, <clears throat> just, uh, we're going to go right into a, a scripture, and this is one of the most popular scriptures that, we, that probably world around. Even if you didn't grow up in church, or if this is your first time ever to come to a church, you probably will have heard this verse, and we're going to read it. Uh, I'll read it to you, and we're going to read kind of an extended version of it, or some passages after it. But this is John 3, 16. We're going to read 17 and 18 as well. So I'm just going to read that to you, and then we'll talk. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, as I said, most of you probably could speak that first verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Almost everybody has at least heard that. This even in movies that aren't Christian movies at all. And it's an important element that of that passage, one of the most important elements in that passage is that whoever believes in him. So God did the work, and it's available, but apparently you have to believe. Because if you don't believe, it says you're condemned. So we're going to unpack this idea of belief just a little bit today. Because it's critical that we understand belief, because it is an element that is, that is carried through the entire New Testament. Every time it talks about God's saving grace for us, it talks about believing it. In virtually every passage where it comes up, belief, faith, those are the key elements to activate God's grace for us. So I'm just going to jump right into um, a discussion briefly about what is it that Jesus accomplished? So I said, yeah, he was born, he was, came in a manger, and he's this baby, and we celebrate that, and it's all warm and fuzzy. But we said, as I said before, but it's really his work at the end of his life that brought it all together, that, that consummated God's perfect plan to redeem his people. And so what exactly did he accomplish? And I'm going to read from First uh, Peter, and he says this about what God accomplished for us through Jesus. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. And that's what Jesus accomplished. And we'll talk about some of the details of that in a minute, but 
What he accomplished was he ransomed you back through Jesus' death. Now, when you pay a ransom for someone, it's because they're captive. They're being held somewhere or kept somewhere. You don't pay a ransom for something you already have. You pay a ransom for something you don't have that someone else has. And so this verse is already hinting to the idea that we're captives. Without Christ, we're captives. We're enslaved in some way. We've been taken away from God, partly from our own doing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we're, we need to be ransomed. And the way this happened, uh, I guess, functionally, is that God then has, because we're apart from him, has a, has a, a, a wrath against us. And you'd say, well, why does he have a wrath? Well, I'm going to read some scriptures and explain that to you. But God has a wrath that, that goes against us because we're not with him. We're apart from him by our own choosing. So we're captured to something we've chosen, and that separates us from him. And because of that, he has this against us. And Paul, in his uh, letter to the Romans, kind of explains this in detail. First of all, he explains what the wrath is about, and then he starts giving details so that we can understand that there's no way you're going to be able to talk your way out of what you've earned, which is God's wrath. So starting in Romans chapter 1, and this is not on, your, on the screen, I just want you to listen to this, because it gets ugly. It gets ugly fast. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is telling us that we foolishly have decided not to acknowledge God's glory, not to glorify him in our lives, but we've, our hearts have been darkened. Bible talks about this as having a, a hardened heart. See, God says, this is, this is what I want for you, and this is who I am, and you can see it in my creation. I shouldn't even have to spell it out for you because it's apparent. And we would say, ah, you know what, I just, I'd rather not look. I'm going to willfully ignore that because I'd rather kind of do this over here. And see, that separates us from God. That's, that's sin. God says, I have this. You said, no, but I want this and then you move in what you want, that's sin. And that's what separates us. And so then Paul goes on. So you'd say, well, okay, what, what kind of things are you talking about? Well, Paul gives a very extensive list. We're going to read through that. So a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 28, again, not on your screen, but listen. See if you can't recognize a few of these in you. I guess I realize not all of these apply to everybody, but you'll start seeing that in your life, these things have been present. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have, begun filled, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. 
no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, they also approve of others who practice them. That's a pretty scathing indictment. And I would say everybody here, I, 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 and I can say this, and I'm pretty sure I'd be 100% right. Everybody here at one time in their lives have, have gossiped about somebody or slandered somebody, even if it was under your breath, to no one. Everyone here has probably deceived somebody. And Paul's laying out this case in the first part of Romans to say, look, it's a level playing field. Nobody's better than anyone else. And for you to claim that there's no God or that you don't think there's a God that really uh, applies to us, he says, you are willfully ignoring what you know to be true because God made it plain in his creation and the way his creation works. So the atheist has to willfully decide to ignore what's apparent. The agnostic has to ignore what is clear. And God has clearly shown through his creation. So you have to willfully run away. That's that hardened heart. And what's interesting is right, so I read a passage, then I jumped down a few verses and I read another passage. They're all part of Romans chapter 1. Right in the middle, though, he makes this statement, and I think it's the crux of the whole matter. We can sum it all up in one statement, and here's what he says. This is verse 25 in Romans chapter 1. It says, they, humanity, mankind, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, God made sex. And we decided we're going to worship sex instead of worshiping him who made it. So rather than use it the way we're supposed to, we worship, we worship it. And it then commands our attention. It commands our allegiance. God made wealth. We want to worship wealth and chase after wealth rather than chasing after the one who created it in the first place. Possessions. Even our families. Everything. We worship ourselves. I worship me and I'm a created being. Why not worship him who created me. That's what Paul is laying out here. That's the crux of the problem. Every other thing you can think of as sin will fall under that very problem. We're worshiping not God, but the things that we see that came from his hand. And he says, they will not be worshiped. I want to be worshiped. So when we do that, it's sin and it separates us from him. It makes our heart, makes our heart hard. And the Old Testament talks about the hardening, calloused heart of non-believers all the time. And there were times when it actually talked about having an actual heart of stone as a description for our condition. There was a time when Israel had become so far from God and had rejected God to the point and their heart had become so hard that God said, you know what, I'm going to allow your enemy to subdue you. And so Babylon, which is a big, powerful nation nearby, came and destroyed Jerusalem captured all of the Israelites and took them back to Babylon where they served as slaves. They were in captivity, slaves to Babylon because of their disobedience. Very much like us today who are slaves to our stone heart because of our disobedience. And so during that time when they were in Babylon, God sent a prophet, Ezekiel, to speak to his people on his behalf. And he described for them a time when yet future he would remedy this stony heart. He would provide 
he would provide an offer, a fix. And he, and, he, and he said he had it planned all along, but he's going to describe for them what they can look forward to in the future. And he says this, and this is in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This was the news that God was sending to his people. That I'm going to do this someday and you will have a new heart and I will give it to you. Notice he doesn't say here, I'm going to repair your old heart. I'm going to do some work on it. He doesn't say that. So I'm going to take it from you. See, this heart that we have in our natural state, the heart we're born with, which is the essence of who we are, is unfixable. It can't be redeemed. It can't be fixed. It can't be dealt with. God says, I'm going to take it completely away and give you a whole new heart that's of me. You see, think about it. A stone is impenetrable. A stone can't receive the things of God. A heart of stone can't hear what God has and can't share what God has because it can't take it in. It's hardened. And God says, I have a plan to fix that. And he told the prophet who told his people. Earlier, uh, Ezekiel had told his people this before, and he even pointed out the fact that God had planned this all along from the beginning. It wasn't some knee-jerk reaction to his people being hard-hearted. God saw it coming, had a plan, knew it was going to go this way, but the time had not yet come for God to reveal this, this uh, remedy. And so when it was the right time, God revealed it. That is the very reason Jesus was born. So the reason we celebrate Christmas, which is a birthday of a person who was God, come in, God entering into human, a human fleshly body, the reason we celebrate that is not because somebody was born, because of what he did, because of what he accomplished. Nobody, there's no, there's no David Shepherd Day on earth. They don't celebrate my birthday. They don't celebrate Steve's birthday or Lonnie's birthday because we didn't accomplish something to be celebrated. Now, there might be things we do that, that are, are pleasing. That's not my point. My point is, why, why thousands of years later are we still celebrating the birth of a baby who, by the way, was born in a stable in a town nobody ever heard of? Not because he was born, but because of his death. Because of what he accomplished in God's plan to save us. A Savior was born. We didn't know he was the Savior until he completed it. But God was telling us ahead of time, it's coming, it's coming. And that allows us to have this new heart that God can mold. That God can mold and make it shaped like uh, Christ's heart. We want to be more and more like Christ. That stony heart will never be looking like Christ's heart. God has to give you a new one. So how does it happen? So you say, okay, well, God's going to give us this new heart, and Jesus died, and, and so the wrath didn't come to us. It came to Jesus. Okay, I'm kind of tracking. But how, what's, is there some process we can go through or some, some mechanism that will get us this, this new heart and we can dump off that stony heart? And the answer is not really, because whenever we think of processes and mechanisms, we think of something that we can do. And the truth is there's nothing you can do to change your heart of stone. You don't have the power. You don't have the strength. And you don't have what it costs. See, there was a cost 
for us having a callous heart and from turning away and rebelling against God. There was a penalty. Remember, we're, we're captive. Remember that? We're captive. And so he has to pay a ransom. What is the ransom he has to pay? What is, the, what is it that the, 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 the penalty, what is it that our rebellion is asking for to release us? And the answer is your death. Romans chapter 6, it's not, again, not on the screen, but Romans chapter 6 tells us that the wages or the payment or what you have earned by your sin, by your rebellious, stony heart is death. That's the cost. So if you can just pony up your death, then it's all good, right? But you can't do that because then it's over. So what God did is he says, you know what? I will pony up a death in your place. I will send Jesus, and he, will, and he will say, you know what? I'll stand in. He said, I'll stand in for David Shepherd. I'll stand in for him. I'll take the punishment, and he, he, can, he doesn't have to. And that's the beautiful news. So yes, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, but the rest of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, there's a penalty, but Christ can pay it. And that's why we celebrate Jesus come to earth. Here's a better description of it. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says this. This kind of lays it out. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin. Remember I said we're captives. We have to be ransomed. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You're no longer, you, don't have to be, you don't have to have allegiance to that heart of stone. You can have allegiance to a new heart says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Whatever your heart is, you will serve. If you have a heart of stone, you'll serve your heart of stone. If you have a heart of flesh given by God, you'll serve it. And it will manifest in the way you live. If you have a heart of flesh, you live like you have a heart of flesh. If you have a heart of stone, you live like you have a heart of stone. See, Paul's contrasting the two conditions. Do not forget, in our natural state, we are slaves. We are slaves to our sin nature and to our heart of stone. You're captive, and you can't free yourself. Only God does that. So how does he do it? What is it about God? What is it that God offers to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to free us from the captivity we have to our heart of stone? And we, we preach about this all the time, but I think sometimes you have to be careful we preach the whole package and not half the package. We are saved by grace, right? And we love that message. And it's a good message and it's true. Let me read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, the faith, not by works. You're not saved by works so that no one can boast. Nothing you can do. You're saved by grace through faith. In 2 Timothy, it says this, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The grace was given us by Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, remember we said, this is not some knee-jerk. God had it all planned out. It was available. It was ready. It was ready to roll. And in his time, he revealed it. And that's what he goes on to say. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
That is how God saves us, how he exchanges our heart by grace, but not just by grace, by grace through faith. Does that not sound a little bit like John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't just say it's just a done deal. You have to believe. And this is echoed time and time and time again through scripture. So let's unpack this idea of belief for just a minute, okay? So again, we'll go back a couple questions. What is it that saves us? Grace. And how does grace save us? By faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? So what does that mean? What does does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith in something? Because our culture has a completely different idea of what it means to believe something versus what the authors here were writing. What the Holy Spirit was trying to impart was a different thing than what we call belief in faith. See, we just say, oh, I acknowledge that that's the way it is, and we think that's somehow that's belief. And that is not belief. If you haven't, if, if you say, I believe, but nothing changes, oh, I believe this new, new concept, but you go about living as though you don't believe, did you really believe? Or did you just kind of have this mental idea that, yeah, that's probably kind of the way it is? Because I think that's what the world does with all kinds of things. But that's not what they're talking about. It says in James, now James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother, because Jesus was of the Holy, Holy Spirit. But James was the brother of Jesus. He was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. So uh, during this time in the first century, James wrote one of the epistles. And this is what he says about this kind of faith we're talking about. This is what God's talking about when he says, if you believe in me. Okay? It says this, and this is not on the screen, so just listen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will, and, then, and then he knows people are going to argue about it. Because he says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. So he, he, he comes back and he says this, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. He, and then he says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. I'm pretty sure that we're not going to see Satan's demons in heaven with us just because they acknowledge that Jesus is and that God is. They believe. What good is that? And that's what the author is saying here. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me. I am not saying that our works is what saves us. What I'm saying is, if you have been saved, if you have a new heart in Christ, you will have works. You can't have both ways. If you say, I believe, and I, I'm resting my faith, I'm believing to the point of doing something about it, if you say that out loud, but your life looks exactly the same, and nothing ever changes, I would challenge you to examine your heart closely. Do you really believe? Because it says in that passage right after John three sixteen, if you don't believe... You're condemned already. 
Don't let the lie of the enemy come to you and tell you that just mental acknowledgement of Christ is enough. You don't have to do a work, but if you're saved, there will be a work. Let me, and, I, and I know this is a sticking point, and I don't want people to, to get hung up on this. But you say you, you follow Christ. You say, yes, God has saved me. So let me ask you some questions. Does the way you interact with your wife, is it different now? Are you more loving and caring? Are you less selfish and more about her than you? Does the way you interact with your church, is that different now? Are you, are you excited to pour into that and to spread the message of this great news that you've received? Does the way you treat your children, is that different has the interaction between you and your coworkers is that different now? Do they look at you and say to you, man, something's different. What's, what's the deal? If you were in a court of law and based solely on your record, you weren't allowed to speak at all, and they could play back your last, the times from the time you say you had faith in Jesus until this time, and that's all they could do was just look and see what happened, would, they, would you be able to prove and show them that you had saving faith? Would you be convicted of, as a follower, or would they, you get off? Those are hard questions, but they're real. Let me, let me tell you a story, because I think it'll help illustrate this a little better. There was a man who lived in the late 1800s. His name was Clifford Calver, uh, Calver, uh, Calverly, kind of strange name, Clifford Calverly, and he was a daredevil. He did all these crazy stunts all the time, and People would gather around and be all excited to watch him, you know, potentially hurt himself. And, um, but he did all these stunts. And his most famous ones were these high wire acts. He would, he would stretch a line between buildings and walk across it or whatever. And in 1892, he had them stretch a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he crossed Niagara Falls on that tightrope, pushing a wheelbarrow on the tightrope. He gets all the way across. And the crowd's cheering. And he turns to them and he says, now... You've seen me do this. Do you believe I can do it again? And they said, well, yeah, you can do it again. You've already done it once. Perfect. He goes, great. I hear you. He says, do you believe I can do it again with someone else in the wheelbarrow? And boy, they cheered loud. Probably in their minds, they were really thinking, ooh, I'd like to see that. You know, the crowd loves a good tragedy. So, uh, you know, they're probably thinking, well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, we believe because they want to see him try, right? So they're like, yes, we believe, we believe. And here's what he responded to them. Well, all I need is one volunteer. Which one of you is getting in? <laughs> Would you believe that not a single person offered to get into that wheelbarrow and get pushed across Niagara Falls? But every single one of them said, yes, we believe. Do you see the difference? You could have come to church for 15 years. And you could have heard a message once and said, yeah, I, I think I, I need that. I need that from Christ. I need that. And, and, and I think that's right. And come down and even said a prayer or prayed with somebody or made sort of a sort of commitment. But I would ask you, since that time, has your life changed? Has your heart been different? Did you lose your heart of stone? Or are you still gripping onto it with your fingernails? Like, I, I just can't do it. You know, God's going to take that from you, but he won't do it against your will. You have to surrender it. Surrendering is believing. The true work of faith comes after salvation, but there will be works. The Bible says that God 
prepared ahead of time good works for his people to do. Those that follow Christ have good works set aside, ready to do. Are you doing them? And if, if your answer is no, I would say examine your heart. I don't get to say whether or not you've had an exchange of heart with Christ. I don't get to say whether, whether salvation has occurred to you or not. That's between you and God. But your evidence is whether or not you see your life changed. That's what, that's what James was talking about. We don't justify ourselves before God by our works. We justify ourselves before men with our works. How would someone else hear the message of the gospel and believe it's true if your life looks just like it did before? We're called to reach other people. You can't reach other people with your old life. It's powerless. That heart is still stony. And God makes that available. Right now, today, every day. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because Christ came, lived his pure life, sinless, spotless. We just read it. And because he was spotless, he didn't owe a debt. So he was free to pay someone else's. As a matter of fact, he was free to pay everyone else's. And every single human being is offered this gift that started with the Christ and finished with the cross and the resurrection. And Paul teaches about it. And James teaches about it. In Corinthians, it says this. If, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things are past. Everything is new. The new has come, it says. Are you new? You have to be new. Now, that doesn't mean that there's corners of your heart as you walk, as God makes you more and more like his son, that there's not areas where he still works. There's not areas where you still shy away. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the major transformation. I'm talking about is your direction changed? Some people are walking in that direction a little faster than others. But are you still walking in the old direction? Because if so, I'm telling you, your heart hasn't changed. You'll follow your heart. You'll always follow your heart because you're captive to it. Are you a slave to your stone or are you a slave to the flesh heart God gives? That's the question. So the band's going to come out and they're going to play a song. And um, while they're playing, I, I want you to really examine your heart. Maybe you've, come to, maybe you've come to Life Church for 10 years and you're thinking, man, you know, I, I, my life just isn't any different. I'm kind of going through the motions Maybe you're hanging on to that stony heart. Maybe you need to finally say, you know what? I'm going to believe to the point where I'm going to do something with my belief. I'm going to have faith to receive the grace. Not just say, well, that's how it is. Yeah, God's that. Yeah, grace. I'm good. Yeah. There's two parts. It's not a work. It's a surrender. Surrender is not work. It's hard, but it's not work. I want everybody to stand up. Because this makes it easier. Because we're all afraid. We're all afraid. We're afraid in church to go to anybody, anywhere, at any time and say, I ain't doing so well. God has really beaten down my heart. God has something against me and I'm ashamed of it. Or I, maybe I've been lying to myself. Whatever it would be, whatever is in your heart, we're, we're so afraid to let anybody know that's happening. And that's the enemy. He's coming and lying to you, telling you, see how bad you are? You're irredeemable. God can't even fix your heart. Your heart's stone like he's never seen your heart. It's like diamond stone. That's a lie. 
God is bigger than anything in your heart, and he will take whatever heart you have and take it away and give you his, and he wants to do it. If there's somebody here right now, today, that has never heard that or never, never allowed God to, to take their heart, never surrendered it and said, Lord, man, I just, I can't do it anymore. And I'm, I'm going to believe to the point where I just accept it and I'm going to move in it. I'm going to move in it. Here's what I want you to do. This is crazy. And I know people are afraid and all that, but don't be. I want you to come out from your seat and come down here and I'm going to pray with you. If, you've ne- if, if, if Jesus has never encountered you, you've never given your heart over, I'm going to come down here when we start singing. I want you to come down and we're going to pray. You don't have to pray with me. You can pray by yourself. I don't want to make that awkward, but I want you to go through the motion. Does getting out of your seat, there's something miraculous about that? No. There's nothing magical about standing or coming down or getting on your knees. But you put yourself in a posture where you're showing that you believe. You're showing that you're ready to do this. And it gives you courage. So that's one group. Here's the other group. Those of you that are regulars here, that are known by people, that are worried what someone might think. Maybe you've been coming for four or five years, maybe 20 years. And you're like, you know what? I got pieces of my heart that I'm hanging on to and I'm not letting God rip that stone away. And it's me being callous. It's me being selfish and it needs to go and it needs to go now. And you recognize that. And I'm going to move in faith. And my life hasn't changed much. And I need it to change more. And God needs to make me more like him every day, every day. And I'm going to change direction and head that way. And if that's you, I want you to come down. I want you to get out from your seat and come down here. I'll pray with you. We'll have other people from the prayer team here if you want to pray with somebody. If there's hardship in your life, God wants to meet with that. Come down here and pray. It doesn't have to be your heart. It could be some, some circumstance in your life. God's here to meet you right now, today. It's the last part of the year. What a better way to start off, kick off 2019 than with the fresh, fleshy heart that God would put in you. Taking steps in a direction toward him. It would be a miracle that only he brings. So we're going to sing and I'm going to be down here. Examine your heart.